just let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Pray for the children upstairs as well. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word and pray that as we look at the Lord Jesus, Father, speak to us of him. Uh, Father, pray for the children as well. Pray for Caroline and Doug as they teach the children upstairs. Father, pray that they too uh, would see the Lord Jesus as they look into his word. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever been on a frustrating journey? You know, you try to get there, but it just seems like one thing after another, after another, just seems to want to stop you. One trip sort of comes to mind for me, which is a trip that I made to Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, my sort of, I still sort of shake whenever I see a sign for Stoke-on-Trent. My passenger insisted that they knew the way to the railway station. It's simple, you just start by taking the third exit at the first big roundabout. Except when we got there, there wasn't a big roundabout. They decided they were doing some roadworks and they were taking out the roundabouts altogether. So it's just a mass uh, of roadworks and traffic lights and we had no idea uh, where to go. They also removed all the signage because of the roadworks, so there was no sign for the railway station. And Stoke is made up of six towns. So I think the railway station is only in one of them. Uh, my passenger didn't know which one it was in. We didn't have a map with us. So, to put a very long story short, we visited, I think, all six towns of Stoke several times. We drove around for over an hour and a half, and we came back to that same non-roundabout at least four times, trying to find this place. And to top it all, I managed to break my exhaust pipe on a very high curve on that journey. At one point, I had to get out of the car and just go for a walk to calm down. It was very, one of the very few occasions in my life when I got so frustrated that I was scared I was going to lose it with my passenger. And oh, on top of all that as well, the passenger didn't drive. So they would sort of say, turn left when you were in the right-hand lane at a roundabout. It was, it was a nightmare. Like I said, just the merest mention of Stoke now sends a shudder down my spine. I wonder if you've had similar frustrating journeys. Well, the disciples in our passage today face a frustrating journey. They've had an amazing, if probably exhausting time distributing bread and fish for over 5,000 people. But seemingly they've had no real clue about what's been going on. They don't know what's been happening. And as the disciples uh, now, they, they do go out to do something they're more used to. They're seasoned fishermen, most of them. And I imagine, you know, boats were quite natural to them. They're getting in a boat and they're crossing Lake Galilee. But actually they find this the most frustrating part of the journey. But this is no accident what happens to them. Jesus, as we've seen through this gospel, is very much in control of the wind and the waves. He was still able uh, to stop a storm in seconds, just a few chapters ago. The wind and the waves obey this man. So what is happening is what he wants to happen. Jesus is going to use this to teach the disciples something about who he is. And Mark has recorded it for us so that we get to listen in. And learn too about the identity of our incredible saviour. So first of all we see a frustrating journey. Let me read to you again verses 45 uh, to 48. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them he went upon a mountain to pray. And when evening came the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making painful headway, for the wind was against them. Jesus gets his disciples to go on ahead of him in this boat while he dismisses the crowd, and then he heads up a mountain. 
John's Gospel tells you that part of the issue here is that people were so enamoured by Jesus feeding them that actually they wanted to start a rebellion and make him king. But Mark focuses instead not why he went away, but what he goes to do there on this mountain. Jesus prays. Now, of course, Jesus prayed many times during his life, but Mark only gives us three occasions when Jesus prays. Mm. Once in Mark 1, right at the beginning of his mission, when it's in danger of straying away, and, and instead of it being about preaching the good news, it's in danger of him just becoming a sort of healer. The, the other time is in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, that crucial night that we were hearing about earlier, um, before Jesus goes to the cross. And the other occasion is here. These things are all at crucial points in the mission, so why here? Well, there's something about the miracle that Jesus has just performed, the feeding of the 5,000, that's of crucial significance. <coughs> so much so that it's referred to later again in our passage, it's referred to again in chapter 8, right at the centre of the book, and it's all but repeated in the feeding of the 4,000, uh, just before that. The miracle of the loaves that we heard about last week, the feeding of the 5,000, becomes the identity-revealing miracle of the Gospel. The thing that you look at to understand who Jesus is up until the resurrection. Indeed, in other Gospels, it's the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that's included in all four. And Jesus prays because something really significant has just happened. If the disciples don't get what's going on with the miracle of the loaves, there's no hope for them. They're not going to understand who Jesus is. So it paves the way for everything else, including the miracle that we see in our passage. But while Jesus is praying, the disciples are paddling. Apparently, under normal conditions, it normally takes only a couple of hours to cross Lake Galilee. And they're not even trying, if you look at it, to get to the other side, where across on the opposite side. They're just trying to get further around the coast. But the disciples are paddling and not getting anywhere. The wind is against them. And they're going nowhere. While Jesus has dismissed a crowd of over 5,000 people, climbed up and down a mountain, also spent time praying, the disciples haven't even managed to row across the lake. They're still there. Apparently, from the mountains around Lake Galilee, you can see quite clearly what's going on on the sea. You can see the boats as they try and get across. And Jesus sees them there, they're getting nowhere. We don't know what time they set off or how far out they actually got. But by the time Jesus gets to them in a few verses' time, it will be somewhere between 3am and 6am in the morning. If you imagine rowing at that time in the morning? You can imagine, can't you, that they've been sort of paddling and paddling, fighting against the wind, struggling to get anywhere, exhaustedly rowing, basically just to stay where they are. It says painfully making headway, and you can imagine it was painful. Trying to row all that time into the early hours of the morning. Their arms must have been on fire by this point. But there is hope. Jesus sees them, and rather than just sort of leaving them in their frustration, he comes to them. He could have left them floundering. He could have uh, left them in their futile fight against the wind. But he comes to them. Because he has something to teach them. All is futility at this point until... Jesus comes by, and that's our second point, until I am passes by. Let me read to you 48 to 51. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, 
But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now to understand this section, we need a little bit of Old Testament background. Okay, Mainly with just those two verses. First of all, verse 48, Jesus here is walking on water. And first of all, you want to say, wow. This is not a normal situation, is it? This is something you don't see every day. But secondly, it tells you that he he was walking on water and he meant to pass by them. That's what the, the verse says. Now, if it meant to overtake them, then he fails, doesn't he? They see him and his plan is scuppered. And why would he be meaning to overtake them? I mean, they're not in a race, are they? It's not like he was going to get to the other side of the river and sort of go, surprise, maybe they're here before you. That would be the closest that we come to a sort of party trick miracle for Jesus, if that's what he was trying to do. It doesn't help anybody, does it? It's not him showing compassion to anyone like we see with the other miracles. He would be leaving them stuck on the lake while he goes to where he's going to and gets a good night's sleep. That's what would be happening. No, Jesus means for them to see him. It's not an accident. Nothing is an accident with Jesus. So what does it mean that he meant to pass by them? Well, passing by, that phrase, is what God does in the Old Testament to reveal himself to someone in a special way. God passing by is God visiting his people. Over the last few weeks with Mark's Gospel, we've seen lots of images of Moses, haven't we, in the time around Moses. Let's have a look what happens with Moses. This is from Exodus 33, uh, when God meets with Moses. Exodus 33, 18 to 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. That's Moses speaking to God. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face you shall not see. That's what happens with Moses. The Lord passes by. That is the way that God reveals his glory to Moses. That is the way that Moses can see him. Exactly how we'll come to in a minute. The same happens with Elijah, who's been another character we've been seeing over the last few weeks. Um, In 1 Kings 19, the Lord passes by Elijah while he hides in a cave to reveal himself to Elijah. Passing by is Old Testament speak for God showing up and showing his glory. And did you notice in Exodus what God does to reveal himself? He spoke his name, the Lord. Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Now that's the second bit of Old Testament background we need. It's God's name, the Lord. God tells Moses his name in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. He says, if I come to the, Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now when you see the word Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, it's translating Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H. In Old English it was, uh, people said Jehovah, it's more likely pronounced to be like Yahweh, and it was God's name. And Yahweh meant I am. So when he says, I am sent you, that's what he's saying. It's God's name. The Greeks started the tradition of using the word Lord in Bibles instead of God's name. But if you translated it literally in Greek, it would be ego I me. Ego I me. So in the Exodus 3 passage in the Greek, that's what's used. That's how God says his name. Why am I telling you all this? It sounds a bit academic, doesn't it? Well, because that's what Jesus says to his disciples here. When he says, take heart, in verse 50, it is I, he doesn't actually say, it is I, he literally says, ego, I me. In other words, I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus uses exactly the same phrase in John 8, where it is translated that way. So John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Same phrase. So here, Jesus passes by his disciples and proclaims his name. I am. Exactly as what had happened with Moses all those years before. So Jesus' miracle here is not pointless. It's not like he's trying to get round them. He's actually revealing himself to his disciples. He's giving them a glimpse of his glory as he confidently walks on the waves. And that walking on the waves is the third bit of Old Testament background, last bit that we need for this section. Someone walking on water is without precedent in the Old Testament. Nobody does that, unless we're talking about God. In Job 9, it says that God tramples on the waves of the sea. That's what God does. God is the one who walks on the waves. It says in that same passage that he passes, he passes by. But we do not see him. He moves on, but we do not perceive him. He's the one who passes by without being recognised. God is the one who is doing the miracle here. Jesus is God going through. And we see many other allusions to Moses in the Exodus when the people pass through the water of the Red Sea. That may be there as well. That miracle takes place at the same time in the first thing in the morning between 3am and 6am. The crossing of the Red Sea took place at that time too. But this isn't just walking through the sea, is it? It's not the sea going to the side. This is someone walking on the sea. He doesn't even need to move the water out of the way. This is on another level to what happens at the Red Sea. If people could walk on water, there'd be no need to part the water, would they? They could just walk across. No problem. So this is something utterly incredible. This is something only God could do. Moses couldn't do this, Elijah couldn't do this, but the great I am can do this. And this is him visiting his people. So what is his message? What does he tell his people? Verse 50, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I never get sick of saying that's the most repeated command in the Bible. Probably it's because it's the one we need to hear the most, isn't it? Do not be afraid, take heart. That literally means be bold, be brave, be of good courage. In other words, don't be afraid. 
Because actually, if you look at the disciples, they were terrified. They thought they'd seen a ghost. Jesus tells us they were glad to get Jesus in the boat, but probably because only because it stopped the wind and the waves at that point. They were terrified, thinking that this was a ghost until they realised that it's Jesus. The disciples, in verse 51, are utterly astounded. And you could read that in a good way, couldn't you? You could think, wow, this is, you know, the wow factor of this is incredible. But what follows shows us that this is not a good thing. And so our final point. But to hard hearts, it will make little difference. Let me just read to you 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples start off terrified in the verses before. They're stirred, troubled, disturbed, thrown about. Sort of word has all those meanings. And they finish off utterly astounded. Literally, this is what it says. They were very much exceedingly in themselves, beside themselves. Very much exceedingly in themselves, beside themselves. That's what that's translating. That last word, astounded, is, is used in a couple of other times in Mark's Gospel, but it's nearly always in a negative way. So back in Mark 3, 21, his family talk to him, and they say, he is out of his mind. That is that same word as astounded. He's, he's out of his mind. We probably say in spoken English, they're freaked out by this. This is what's really going on. It comes as a complete shock to them that Jesus can do this. They really still have no idea who Jesus is. And it's tempting, isn't it, to look at this and go, well, it's as plain as daylight, isn't it? They must have been able to tell. Jesus is revealing his divine nature. He's revealing that he's the Son of God. But the disciples are clueless to it. More than that, they're faithless. They don't believe. Mark helpfully explains what's going on in 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. He's saying, first, if they'd have understood about the loaves... They would have gotten this. If they'd understood what Gareth was teaching us from the front last week, here is the good shepherd, Yahweh, providing for his sheep, like he did in the wilderness years in Exodus. Here is God himself, come as man to the people. If they'd have got that, then they'd have understood this. But they don't. Later on, Jesus will quiz them about that miracle, and they're still completely in the dark as to what it meant. And Mark here gives us the reason. It goes deeper. Mark here explains that their hearts were hardened. Now we've been in Exodus territory throughout this section. And if you think about hard hearts in that way, this is very bad news. I mean, hard hearts are bad news anyway. But who was it in Exodus that had a hard heart? It was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the one who hardened his heart, who refused to listen to God. Who said, who is the Lord, Yahweh, I am, that I should obey him. I do not know the Lord. And the disciples here are in the same position. They don't understand. Not because they have a brain issue, but because they have a heart issue. It's not to do with their intelligence. It's not that they're stupid. They're not. Some of them will go on to write incredible literature, the stuff that we have in the New Testament. It's not that they're slow. It's that their hearts are hard, are blind, are impenetrable. But the disciples aren't alone. He mentions the crowd at the synagogue. 
uh, hard hearts in chapter 3. He mentions that some of the commandments were given in part because the people had hard hearts in chapter 10. This hardness of the heart is mentioned elsewhere. But only Mark really brings it to the disciples. And it's showing us that hanging around Jesus isn't enough. It's not enough to just be with Jesus for a bit. They're still actually blind to who he is. The great I am comes walking on the waves, proclaims his name like in the days of old. But instead of producing faith, it produces fear. They're terrified. They're terrified of what's going on. They're beside themselves. Other Gospels record more about this event. Peter coming out on the water, for example. There the reaction seems more positive to start with. But here Mark just wants us to see their utter failure to see what's really going on. It will take a miracle to unharden their hearts, to unblind their eyes. But Mark gives us hope in the last part from verses 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognised him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever he was heard. There they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. If someone is going to perform a miracle to unharden these hearts, to open their eyes, if anyone can do it, Jesus can do it. If anyone can sort out these disciples, it's Jesus. We're just given a little glimpse at the end, a little reminder of his tremendous power and authority. It's showing us that even Jesus' clothes could heal people. Like unclean people's clothes made other people unclean, Jesus' power is seemingly contagious and even passes through his clothes, like we saw with the woman with the issue of blood in the chapter before. There'll be a huge turning point in chapter 8 when Jesus directs this tremendous healing power towards their blinded, hardened hearts. But for now, it makes a big point for us, doesn't it? The problem is that not that God is not revealing himself. That's to me, not. The problem isn't that God... No, it is. It's right number. <laughs> God is revealing himself. Let's put it, put, it, put it positively. That's not the problem. The problem is not that it's unclear who Jesus was. Who he, and that he was who he said he was. The problem is that actually we've got hearts that don't want to see it. And when we share who Jesus is and what he came to do with people and they don't respond, or they respond negatively, the problem is not often that we weren't articulate enough or we didn't explain it well enough, or that we weren't clear enough. <coughs> Actually, the problem is that their hearts are hardened by the disciples here. And knowing that, as we go about doing that, should help us in three ways. One, it will keep us from pride if we remember that we're talking to hard hearts. It's not that we're cleverer than people who haven't put their trust in Jesus. It's not that we're in some way better than those people. It's got nothing to do with our level of intelligence or intellectual grasp. Actually, it's that God has opened our eyes. It's not something we can be proud about. Secondly, though, as well, it'll keep us from pride. It will keep us from despair. Sometimes sharing about Jesus can feel like banging your head against a brick wall, can't it? It can feel like those disciples futilely, frustratingly fighting against the wind and getting nowhere. Like their futile journey. 
And that's why we need so much encouragement to keep doing it, isn't it? But these passages show us why. We're trying to show something to someone who willfully won't see it. Think Pharaoh in Exodus. The evidence of God was right in front of him. He got some of the biggest evidence ever. But instead of believing, he hardened his heart. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what we're facing. And knowing that should at least keep us from despair. It's not that we're doing something wrong. That doesn't mean we stop sharing, though. Because the third way that it helps us is that it will keep us from pride, uh, it will keep us from despair, and it will keep us on our knees. That's the third thing. It's going to take a miracle to unharden their hearts, to open their eyes, to overcome the strong man who's blinding them in Mark's language. Well, they need Jesus to come to them, don't they? They need Jesus. And so that will keep us on our knees. We'll pray to God to change hard hearts. We'll pray to God to open faltering eyes. We'll pray to God to bring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. We preach and we pray. We need both. We need to do both. I wonder if we have a tendency perhaps to to one or the other, but we need both. Otherwise, it will be a lesson in futility. Otherwise, we will be wasting our time. We'll end up going round in circles more times than I went round Stoke. So let's not waste our time. Let's talk, let's preach, let's speak of the great I Am. He's revealed himself to us. But let's pray to the great I Am as well, that they put their trust in him. Because that's what it's going to take for these disciples. So let's pray now that God would help us to preach and to pray as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you revealed your son to the disciples. Father, thank you that they were left in no doubt in one sense as to who he is. Father, thank you for revealing yourself, not leaving us in the dark. And Father, pray that you'd help us to see more clearly who you are. And then, Father, to speak to all who will listen. Uh, Father, and sometimes those who won't. Uh, Father, of, of the Lord Jesus and who he is and all that he has done for us on the cross. Father, keep us from feeling despair, keep us from feeling pride, and Father, keep us on our knees. Keep us praying and faithful for our friends, our family, and those who don't know the Lord. And Father, pray that you would do that work of unhardening their hearts, of opening their eyes, and letting them see the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen.